Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Today I'm joined by Raphael Honigstein, the world's top journalist on German soccer, to discuss his biography, Bring the Noise, the Jurgen Klopp Story. It's a fascinating look at one of the most charismatic figures in world soccer today. He does something very well, which is the mark of any um, successful manager, which is to bring both the human and the emotional, emotional intelligence to a very keen intellect and a willingness to learn and to come up with, with ideas um, and create something that is bigger than the sum of their parts. He's never been in charge of a team that was a favorite to win any of the competitions that they've taken part in, but he has won stuff and he's come very close with teams that nobody really expected to be that close and that successful. All that and more coming up. Our guest today is somebody I would call the world's leading journalist on German football and one of our greatest soccer journalists, period. Raphael Honigstein is the author of the book Bring the Noise, the Jurgen Klopp Story and Das Reboot, How German Soccer Reinvented Itself. Rafi also writes for ESPN and Der Spiegel, and he appears as a TV pundit in the UK where he lives and in Germany. Rafi, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. First off, congratulations on your Klopp book. Uh, it's terrific. It's available in the U.S., by the way. Um, Klopp is obviously in the news a lot right now with Liverpool beating Man City to reach the Champions League semifinals. I want to get deeper into the book very soon here, but in the near term for now, I wanted to ask you, why has Klopp in both Germany and now in England had more success against Pep Guardiola, in your opinion, than other managers? I think the characteristics of a Jurgen Klopp team are sort of kryptonite for Pep Guardiola team. They like to disrupt teams. They like to break up their passing patterns. They're very aggressive. They take away the space and the time that Guardiola's passing teams thrive on. And they are usually very deadly and dangerous on the counterattack, which again, if you're possession side, is bad news. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of effort. It takes a tremendous amount sort of, of mental fortitude and aggression to play that way. Um, it's also no coincidence that Guardiola's teams, despite, well, aside from being better uh, equipped, have done better domestically than Klopp's sides. But on a knockout uh, one-off occasion, these are the sort of teams that you, if you're Guardiola, just really do not enjoy playing against. And Klopp once more showed that he has perhaps not Guardiola's number, but certainly a way that can be very effective against his brand of football. So when you set about deciding to write this biography of Jurgen Klopp, how did you go about mapping it out and then executing? So from the outset, the word from Klopp and his management was that, um, yeah, go ahead, have a good time, but we won't be part of it. <laughs> was, okay. uh, a little bit disappointing to begin with, but at the same time, it gave me a lot of freedom to write whatever I want. And him and his manager were tremendously helpful behind the scenes in opening doors and telling people that, yes, it was okay to talk to me because almost everyone uh, did ask when I approached him, um, asked sort of Klopp for permission whether they could talk to me and be be open. So he still has that tremendous hold on people. Nobody wants to do something that Klopp disapproves. And um, 
that includes me to a certain extent because when I wrote the book and then gave him a finished copy, of course, I was a little bit anxious to see how he would react. But luckily, he, he felt that it was uh, accurate, that uh, it was quite funny. It, it made him laugh. He said a lot of stories he'd, he'd forgotten, a lot of anecdotes he couldn't remember anymore. <laughs> and I think it, it served to explain who he is as a football manager. I wasn't really so much interested in you know, his personal life, uh, what happened to his first marriage, why wasn't it uh, a success? This kind of stuff is not really my, uh, my genre. I wanted to explain, of course, the person, but how the person relates to his management ideas and where they come from. And I think so far, judging from reaction from both Liverpool, but also the people that I spoke today, they all feel sort of that is, it doesn't justice. So how long did it take you to to do all of the interviews and then all of the writing? You've got so many different people from different parts of Jurgen Klopp's life talking to you uh, from different countries, different places. Um, clearly, you put a ton of time into this. Yeah, it was it was very, very research-heavy book because you had to go and cover basically 50 years. Um his whole life, uh, really starting from from his birth, talking to to his close family members and trying to get the best the best sort of all round three hundred and sixty degree view on him. Uh, I started kind of in earnest in uh, September uh, sixteen, and it took me the best part of that year. Um, I think I was done with the finished manuscript in August. Uh, of 17 and it came out in November 17 so it was a very very long project and I really felt it was it was a strange kind of project to work on because you're writing about someone it's quite an intimate um, kind of work but at the same time that person does not really relate to you and I I made a very conscious decision not to use any of the opportunities that I had in my in my normal line of work, uh, covering Liverpool games or you know going to matches, etc., um, and then asking him questions that I could use for the book, I made a, a clear decision for myself that I was not gonna sort of abuse that uh, proximity, but actually keep a clear line between me and him for the duration of the book and just work with people around him. Um, and of course, you would have. I would have preferred to do the book with him. But at the same time, I think when a lot of people tell you things and they all kind of start repeating themselves and they all kind of point you in certain directions and give you a pretty good idea what this guy about, it, it kind of almost means more than hearing it from him. And I think he felt, um, felt very happy and kind of vindicated a lot of people he worked with, even people that he ne didn't necessarily leave on good terms when he stopped working with. Um, feels that they really respect his work and him as a person. The structure of the book is not chronological, and that makes sense given you're writing in English one and trying to tell Klopp's story while also writing for Liverpool fans who've kind of gotten connected to him later in his career. How did you decide how to structure the book? So there were three reasons for doing it that way. The first one was that I always find chronological biographies a little bit boring. <laughs> and I, I tried to come up with something that would make it more interesting to myself um, writing it. So then the second thought was a practical one. Uh, the book had to work in Germany. 
for people who knew Klopp from his uh, Mainz days, from his Dortmund days, but it also had to work in England where people were mostly buying it if they were Liverpool fans. So yet another reason not to do a chronological book. Otherwise, you have to go through 300 pages before age 47, Jurgen Klopp <laughs> turned up at Anfield Road. So then the third reason was that I felt by um, sort of grouping passages of his life together, um, you could find echoes and you could see sort of how things, situations, management situations kind of repeat themselves and, and big crises and things that seem unique and terrible or, or very exciting and unique at the time actually with him happen over and over again. And by, by putting them together um, sort of thematically, I think it brought out those uh, those echoes without necessarily saying, and the same thing happened to him. So you kind of give the reader, um, I think, of uh, a bit of, you, you trust your reader to work out, you know, the similarities and to see these, um, the way that uh, these situations kind of recur and reflect on each other. And it does perhaps take a little bit of more work that way but I think ultimately for the reader it's also more rewarding uh, when you feel that you kind of um, put a bit of effort in to understanding what's going on and then, then seeing sort of the bigger picture as it emerges slowly. What in your mind having written this book now having followed Klopp for so many years what makes him kind of a singular figure at this point in world soccer? I don't know if, if he's a singular figure. I think he does something very well, which is the mark of any um, successful manager, which is to bring both the human and the emotional, emotional intelligence to a very keen intellect and a willingness to learn and to come up with, with ideas um, and create something that is bigger than the sum of their parts. He's never been in charge of a team that was a favorite to win any of the competitions that they've taken part in. But he has won stuff and he's come very close with teams that nobody really expected to be that close and that successful. So he's clearly doing something very right. And he clearly has the ability, um, and also I think that is part of his strategy, to tap into a collective identity to bring out um, sort of a synergy between the crowd the stadium, the city, the club, uh, including all its employees and the players and create that energy that uh, even if it's intangible, drives players just that little bit further than they would otherwise reach. Uh, we've seen it very clearly at Mainz who had absolutely no right to be promoted to the Bundesliga and stay there when he was there. We've seen it at Dortmund who nobody thought could win German titles and get to the Champions League final. And we're beginning to see it at Liverpool where, of course, uh, in absolute terms, he's worked with lot, much more money than he's ever had at his disposal before. But in relative terms, of course, they're still not the biggest team in Europe. They're still not even the wealthiest team uh, in the northwest of England. So there is something that he does which kind of negates all those disadvantages and makes a lot, perhaps even the maximum of the the stuff that he finds at his disposal. And if you're an employee, you know, if you're FSG or in charge of any other club, that is hugely uh, exciting to you. And just to give you a little snippet that's not in the book, Carlo Ancelotti was also interviewed for the Liverpool job. And the first thing he told FSG was, yes, we need a new um, centre-back. 
we need a new uh, really strong central midfielder and we need a top striker because we need strength all through the spine um, and then Klopp came up and they said, you know, what, what, is, what is it you need? And Klopp said, well, first of all, we need to activate the crowd. We need to make sure that they get behind the team because football is not just about tactics and buying big players. Football is about winning tackles. Football is about energy. Football is about uh, euphoria. Football is about plugging into something that is bigger than, than the team. And now you can guess how that uh, how that went. Well, the proof is in the pudding. But even I think if you didn't know, you, you'd had a good idea of who they would who they would have preferred as their manager. Klopp's father Norbert had a major influence on him uh, from reading the book. Could you explain what you learned about that influence? Norbert Klopp was a very talented uh, footballer who trialed with uh, FC Kaiserslautern in the fifties, a team that had lots of. Uh, German World Cup winners at the time from the 1954 team. It wasn't quite good enough to make it. And also his father didn't allow him to pursue a career as a professional footballer, which at the time wasn't that well paid. But his his obsession with sport was then uh, found, an, found an outlet uh, in, in Klopp Jr., who unfortunately from a very young age was sort of systematically drilled in all sorts of sports he was dragged around the tennis court very early on sunday mornings had no chance was beaten six nil six nil until he actually started hitting balls back he had to ski down a hill where his dad would just go and, and expect him to go behind him this is all in the black forest where you can do all these things within a few meters of your own um, doorstep so it kind of lends itself to that sort of outdoor living and of course football where he just did all these things that you that sort of a football crazed father makes little children do um, you know juggling the ball running around the pitch training for headers for hours on end and being very very unforgiving and not necessarily always positive in his uh, appraisal and I think Klopp um didn't enjoy it, but later began to realize that that was just his way of, of showing showing love, showing how much he was devoted to his son spending all this, these hours and hours and weekends doing sport with him. Um, and when Klopp became a professional footballer, his father was very proud and he would have been even prouder still if he'd witnessed him becoming a successful coach, but sadly passed away uh, just before that happened. There's another chapter about a, a giant influence on Klopp and sort of the playing style that he's associated with now as a manager. Uh, Wolfgang Frank, his, his former coach at Mainz in the 90s, uh, is who that chapter is about. And uh, this is a guy who uh, watched Arrigo Saki, the famous Milan coach uh, of the late 80s and early 90s, was very much a disciple of the, the flatback four which was sort of revolutionary in a, in a time of the libero, uh, zonal marking and pressing. Uh, how did Wolfgang Frank affect how Klopp saw the game? So we just talked about Klopp's biological father. In a footballing sense, Wolfgang Frank was his father, his mentor. Frank, by pitching up at Mainz, who were at the time always fighting against relegation with very little money and about 3,000 people in the stadium every other Saturday, for the first time due to Frank's uh, innovative ideas that you just mentioned, started suddenly winning games, uh, a completely new sensation to anyone concerned, and to Klopp, a real epiphany, because until that time, he had thought good teams win, 
slightly worse teams win less and bad teams lose. But as he put it, thanks to Frank's innovative um, tactics and his sort of collective idea of playing football, suddenly they achieved results that player by player, player were unthinkable. So the system really by being ahead of its time and really ahead of the curve suddenly made them um, slightly independent of their uh, below average individual football and quality. And for Klopp, that was, that was really the Eurocom moment. That was the moment where he realized the importance of tactics and what coaching could do. Uh, Frank, unfortunately, was sort of a guy that was always a little bit antsy and felt he had to move to the next club and didn't actually see out um, his work at Mainz. And it was then when Klopp took over a couple of years later and bringing back those ideas from Wolfgang Frank, the flat back four, the pressing, the zonal marking, that Mainz again, against all the odds, suddenly started uh, fighting for promotion and ult ultimately gaining promotion at the third attempt. And because Klopp has been so successful, the, the pioneering work of Wolfgang Frank had been forgotten a little bit because everyone thought about Klopp as the guy who made that um, style of football fashionable and successful in Germany with Dortmund. And it was a big um, ambition of mine uh, to sort of both dedicate a chapter to his, his father and also to his footballing father and, and show just how important they were in, in making Jurgen Klopp Jurgen Klopp today. I really do love the chapter on Wolfgang Frank and, and hearing about him through his sons as well. Um, there's also a great story in your book about how Klopp first became a manager at Mainz. Can you tell that story? So Mainz, as we just said, are fighting against relegation yet again. And Jurgen Klopp, as the most experienced and one of the most vocal guys, he's really the captain without the armband, is, is injured. Um, and it's carnival time, which is always a, a time of celebration at Mainz. And um, because it's such a big deal, but because Mainz are doing so badly, they're actually sort of uh, interned in a hotel far away so that they don't get tempted by the carnival atmosphere and concentrate on this uh, game that they have, which is a real sort of six-pointer for them uh, against Duisburg. And... Christian Heidel, the sporting director at the time, um, is basically out of options. He goes through um, his big staple of footballing magazines to try and find a new manager, but he feels that they already have been at Mainz at some stage, um, the ones that they could afford in any case. Uh, he really has no idea anymore. And he basically feels that this team is beyond coaching, uh, at which point he has this idea. He says, you know, if if there are no coaches who understand the kind of football that's made us successful in the past, why don't they coach themselves? <laughs> and then he thinks, okay, but we still need somebody who sits there and sort of is the figurehead of this. And naturally Klopp was, was appointed. And when a journalist came to the unveiling, um, you know, we're talking about like a handful of journalists in Mainz, uh, they were laughing <laughs> uh, when Klopp was sat there and they said, you know, what is Klopp doing here? Um, and they couldn't believe it when, he, when they were told that he is the interim manager. And the next day, sort of, they laughed about it in, in the newspapers. And, but, of course, he won the first game by virtue of a um, hugely motivating and, and very captivating speech by changing the tactics back to Wolfgang Schrank's success, successful system of the past. And then he kept on winning. 
mind stayed up. And then the very next season already, they were fighting for promotion from the second Bundesliga. And this is a team that had never been promoted to the Bundesliga. This is a team, as I said, with very few fans, no money, no history. And suddenly, by virtue of this guy who's this larger-than-life figure who's got, and some good footballing ideas, they start being really, really successful. How would you describe Klopp's politics? And is there any connection between his politics and the jobs he has taken? Well, Jurgen Klopp has described his own politics as, as um, left of center. Uh, in German terms, you'd make him a social democrat, you know, somebody who believes in looking after uh, less fortunate members of society, somebody who doesn't necessarily believe that money and the market should be sort of determining factors of somebody's worth. Somebody will always look after uh, people he works with, look after people who have fallen down on hard times um, and sort of vote accordingly. And he's been certainly in the beginning of his career quite outspoken about his uh, his politics, which is unusual for a, for a German football man manager. Of course, at uh, Liverpool, with their history and uh, sort of the anti-Fetcher position that they've had in the 80s, he fits right in. Um, he's been quite uh, reluctant, I think, to talk too much about politics, but he did the other day sort of very carefully and very um, respectfully uh, float the idea that perhaps Brexit is not the most uh, beneficial um, <laughs> idea uh, for Brits and uh, came up with that line, you know, saying, yeah, it's okay. Uh, it's good to think sort of what you should do for a country and everyone wants to uh, wants to progress and be better but maybe it cannot you cannot have a decision that only works for old people in the countryside it has to work for everyone which i think was a very sort of elegant way of of saying where he really stands without being too um too presumptuous and disrespectful as, as somebody who's a, a foreigner of course working in england uh, and that's that's where he is really i think he's somebody because he's still grew up in a divided Germany and as a youngster went to places like Poland and the Czech Republic, uh, well, Czechoslovakia at the time, and uh, really experienced, you know, life or at least the situation behind the Iron Curtain and the kind of uh, the stark difference between what people on the one hand were able to do. He as a youngster, you know, went uh, around Europe after his A-levels to France, to Greece, and those other kids of the same age who would have not been able to go anywhere, being stuck in uh, in small places in, in Poland and the Czech, Czechoslovakia. I think he understands just how beneficial uh, and how hugely yeah, influential a, a united Europe has been. But I think in Britain, being divided from the continent by that little small uh, sliver of water, people don't necessarily appreciate that idea as much as he does. Then there too is a similarity in the fan bases of Liverpool and Dortmund, right? There is. I mean, Dortmund is uh, overwhelmingly a working class city. They're based in the uh, industrial stroke, post-industrial rural area of Germany. Perhaps not quite as working class, not quite as white collar as their neighbors Schalke, but still at the at the time, you know, a firmly very proud uh, sort of working class uh, culture. And of course, Liverpool is exactly the same. So, I think in that respect, it 
the, sort of these ideas of solidarity and of pulling together and also perhaps of kind of taking on the elite at some kind of abstract level is something that gets gets mixed in in the rhetoric. Uh, although Klopp is, I think, when it comes to football, perhaps not quite as dogmatic and, you know, uh, happy to play the underdog all the time. I think when he was in a Champions League final with Dortmund against Bayern, he played on the uh, sort of Robin Hood um, outlaw kind of uh, underdog uh, narrative a little bit. But in reality, you know, Dortmund are still the second biggest team in, in Germany. So, uh, and Liverpool are, of course, a huge team as well. But I think he's he's managed to instill that uh, against all the odds. And it doesn't matter if we are up against a better team mentality in his team. And I think that is the main um, the main beneficial aspect of, of thinking that way. He pointedly made the point before the games against Manchester City that they were the best team uh, in Europe, in his opinion. But Liverpool were a team that could beat the best team. And he said exactly the same about Dortmund when, when they were taking on Pep Guardiola's Bayern even before. And I think he, he absolutely believes in that. At Liverpool, in what ways do you think Klopp has succeeded the most and in what areas has he continued to struggle a bit at times? Well, I think it's been a real learning curve for him to start with the negatives, to really uh, adapt and adjust his methods to life in the Premier League. I think the uh, lack of a winter break, the crazy rhythm of of matches, the physical demands, the strength uh, when it comes to very sort of straightforward football from the opposition, um, which kind of introduce an an element of randomness, which I think is very hard to to, uh, deal with if you don't have the exact... Um, players equipped for that, uh, hence the, the pursuit of Van Dijk um, this year. It, those are all things that I think he had to learn and is still learning. He's very honest along with his team uh, of coaches that, they are, that this is an ongoing process, that they couldn't quite come and have all the answers already. And perhaps it has taken a little bit longer than, than people have anticipated. Uh, at the same time, I think what he has succeeded in uh, irrespective of the outcome uh, of this season, is he has created a very positive momentum. Um, Liverpool fans are once again really excited to going to Anfield. They're looking forward to exciting football. They, they have a sense that they can beat anyone. That they, have no, they don't need to be in the shadow of any of their, their rivals or neighbours. And All these things are already worth a lot when you consider when he took over the club in October 15, just how demoralized and almost depressed um, the whole fan base was after uh, a very poor start to the season, a very sort of dull, methodical football under Brendan Rodgers. It's really changed by 180 degree, and that sense of excitement and uh, of going places has definitely returned to Liverpool thanks to him. How do you think Klopp will approach this Champions League semi-final tie against Roma and then a potential final against Bayern or Real Madrid? Well, I think Klopp will try very careful to come up with a strategy that finds the right balance because, of course, you don't have to necessarily score lots of goals to go through. You don't necessarily have to overwhelm your position all the time. I think Roma will give... Liverpool a lot more of the ball, certainly at Anfield, and Liverpool have to come up with ideas of, of breaking down a, a Roma side that will be quite deep, I think. So that is a challenge that in the past Liverpool have struggled with, but have become better 
when it comes to to opening up deep deep teams, defensive sides. And then you need to have good enough result then to be in a position to plan the counter-attack away to uh, to the Italians in the second leg. And that would be the game plan. It relies on uh, finding solutions in the final third. And you just wonder if the you know the Liverpool midfield will have enough creativity uh, because really it is a fairly workmanlike um, midfield that does a great job in sort of shielding the defense and building a platform for the three guys up front but doesn't actually contribute a lot when it comes to to playing creative football so they need to they need to find a way to open up this this Roma team and then uh, be in a good position to uh, to play their own game in a in a sort of more uh, reactive almost way I think in the second leg in terms of the Premier League do you think Klopp can win the Premier League at Liverpool in the current situation they've got there? Well, I think it depends a lot on on what they do in the transfer market. They are getting into the position where you feel the team is working and one or two players who are top players in individual positions actually they make a huge difference. They're in a fortunate position where you feel that this is a side that collectively know what they're doing so if you can just upgrade key guys the effect is is huge is bigger than it would be otherwise if they're just like a bunch of individuals still trying to figure out what it is they're exactly doing um i would compare them here with man united who you feel have individually great players but collectively it just doesn't seem to have the same sense of purpose and uh and almost efficiency so I think that because what he's doing and because people trust him, that in turn makes them more ready to put their hands in their pockets and invest heavily. I think a Van Dijk, you know, for 75 million pounds, if they didn't believe in Klopp, FSG would have been very reluctant to sanction that kind of move. The same with Cater for a similar kind of fee, uh, not much uh, less than that. Uh, if you can add players that have such a big make such a big difference, then you are not that far away. The key would be, I think, to get closer to Man City. You still, I think, in, in uh, next year have to rely on Man City slipping up because they will be again the favourites to win. But Liverpool's job under Klopp is to be ready for that slip up. And unfortunately for them, you know, when the two Manchester clubs showed weakness last season. They weren't quite ready and Chelsea ran away with it. And even the year before, uh, when, of course, Klopp had only just taken over again, Liverpool were not in a conversation when Leicester City won it. You just have to get close to that. And then uh, I think eventually they'll, they'll be in with the real chance. But it might take one more year, I feel. We're winding down here. Just a couple more questions with Raphael Honigstein, the author of Bring the Noise, the Jurgen Klopp Story. I wanted to ask you about... An American player, because we have a mostly American audience here. Um, the top American men's player is Christian Pulisic. And we know we've heard that Klopp likes Pulisic. You've interviewed Pulisic quite a bit uh, yourself. What do you think are the chances that we could see Pulisic make a move to Liverpool at some point? Well, I think the chances of, of Christian Pulisic ending up in the Premier League at some point are quite high. Whether that will be to Liverpool, whether that be to another club, whether that be next season, I really don't know. I think it depends on lots of variables. You know, he is coming into the kind of price bracket where even um, the biggest teams in the world will have to think 
twice if they want to spend so much money on somebody who is still growing as a player, who's still not the finished article. I think with Klopp, um, you wonder, you know, will he be a real challenger to the guys that they have up front? Or will he just be at this point a squad player trying to live off scraps when Mane and Salah and Firmino are not playing? Because it's hard to see another attacking midfielder fitting in there as long as you play with that system. Um, I, I'm not sure there is there is an answer to that. I think my my own feeling would be that he'd still be better served playing as an out-and-out automatic starter at a club of Dortmund's size, where he'll again be in the Champions League next year and be again a starter, rather than um, sort of fighting for a place uh, at a bigger side. But eventually, if he progresses uh, in the same sort of rapid way that we've seen from him in the last couple of years, there is no doubt that Dortmund will be too small at some stage. And then it comes down, who, you know, whoever can convince him that he has got a realistic chance of, of making it um, and what, what sort of the financial financial implications are. Um, I'm not sure it will happen this summer uh, just yet. Okay. One other player I wanted to ask you about is Mohamed Salah because they've had tremendous chemistry with their front three this season at Liverpool, but Salah has surpassed everyone's expectations with his performance. How has Klopp, in your opinion, gotten the most from Salah? Well, I think Salah, as you said, has surprised everyone, including Klopp and perhaps himself as well. I think the system just works really well for him because he's been mostly played as a, as a winger, where in most systems, you know, he is tasked to come back without the ball and, and really go all the way back into uh, deep into his own half to protect his fullback. With that 4-3-3 system that Klopp is playing, he's starting out on the right, but can go absolutely anywhere he wants. Also in Roberto Firmino, he has a um, nominally a centre forward who doesn't really play like one. So he leaves that, that space in the middle for Salah to exploit and make space for him again, not many centre forwards, I think, play that unselfishly. I think if you put a, um, let's say, Robert Lewandowski up front or a Gonzalo Higuain or even Sergio Aguero, I think they would struggle to come up with the same sort of um, understanding and uh, providing that much opportunity for Salah to to go into the centre forward striking position. So it is a system that works, and of course he has, I think, found a, a real confidence in in himself to to all the time do the difficult stuff because it's always easier, you know, to not go into the box, but to play the ball early, to look for a teammate. But Salah has this uh, belief in himself now that he can go and drive at players and take lots of touches in the box and somehow get into goal scoring uh, positions or at least cause enough mayhem that something else happens and the ball falls to someone else. So it's an, it's, it's, as ever, I think with Klopp or any good manager, it's a combination of um, having a tactical system that brings out the best of your best players, which he clearly does, but also giving him the confidence and sort of the right um, man management style that that speaks to him. And you can see, I think, with the joy, with the yeah, the 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 smile that he plays on the pitch, that he feels just incredibly comfortable in his own skin and. Who knows, he might have felt that way with any coach, but certainly Klopp has been able to to make him feel very happy and very confident in himself. 
lastly, I wanted to ask you, you have written a couple of books now. Um, DOS Reboot, I would highly recommend for anyone who wants to learn more about how Germany turned itself around over a period of years, culminating in winning World Cup 2014. Um, how was that book different for you than this more recent book was as, uh, you know, this is a biography, it's a different type of book, but how did you experience your, your newer book, Bring the Noise, differently than Das Reboot? So uh, luckily I was able to, to build a little bit on Das Reboot because there is a chapter on, uh, on Germany reinventing themselves uh, tactically in the clubs and Klopp and Wolfgang Frank were huge, uh, hugely important figures in that. So I didn't have to start from scratch. I could build on some of the um, ideas that I'd explored and some of the interviews I've done as well. But of course, it is a different story if you uh, rather telling the story of a football development, of a football movement, of a, um, a campaign uh, when, it ki- when it comes to the actual World Cup 2014. You, you look at a person and how they relate sort of in, in the wider scheme of things. So it's just a different way of working. Um, what I found very enjoyable is just the amount of people that I, that I spoke to. There were a lot of interesting people who had lots of interesting things to say. Uh, in Das Reboot, it was similar. But with Klopp, I just had to do more of that. And actually, for me, that's always the most satisfying and enjoyable part of writing is the actual not writing bit, where you sit down <laughs> with people for hours and they come up with all these anecdotes and all these stories and you just listen and think, yeah, this is going to look great, great on the page and you're kind of almost editing in your head as you're listening. I mean, that is the that is really the fun bit. And I was lucky uh, that I followed up this uh, biography for Klopp with an autobiography that I worked with, with um, Per Mertesacker, the Arsenal captain who's retiring this season. And um, I was yet again a different way of working because you're only just talking to one guy. But at the same time, that was even more fun because you just sat there for hours and hours just talking football with a really, really nice guy. So I'd say that was probably the most enjoyable book. Um, And it'll be out in May in Germany and maybe in the UK and US afterwards. All right. Looking forward to that one. The book is Bring the Noise, the Jurgen Klopp story. Raphael Honigstein, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me, Grant. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Raphael Honigstein as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon and now Fubo TV. Recent guests include Becky Sauerbrunn, Rory Smith, John Strong, and Kay Murray. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast 
Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.